Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not an, a legal analyst. <laughs> I'm certainly not a lawyer. I'm not uh, a person who's paid to uh, comment on the doings of the Supreme Court. None of that. So uh, you don't hear me pontificating, analyzing about the contents of Supreme Court opinions on this program. But uh, in the welter of such opinions over the past couple of weeks, I have to note a couple of things. One, they're all important, but the uh, opinion last week that threw in the legal trash heap the so-called independent state legislature theory was most likely the most important opinion of this term, perhaps of any term by this court, because of its impact, had it gone the other way, on the little thing we call democracy. The other point I wanted to bring up here at the outset, to be followed by the inset, of course, is that a major opinion of the court this week regarding the uh, Christian woman web designer who didn't want to design websites, uh, wedding websites, for gay couples was not based on a real case. There was supposedly a request put in by a guy named Stuart for the oncoming wedding he was planning with Mike. And that was submitted into uh, the files in that case at some point, not at the beginning. Uh, some enterprising news folks traced that Stuart. He says he never filed such an inquiry, that he's happily married to a woman, and he's kind of flummoxed by the whole thing. It suggests, and by the way, the, the uh, designer in question, if I'm not mistaken, has not designed any wedding websites for anybody. Which all suggests this wasn't a real case. The uh, court has a rule, I believe, that it only deals with so-called, quote, cases and controversies, unquote. This, upon evidence so far, appears to be a hypothetical case. If that's what they're accepting now, as cases to uh, be judged, all I can say to the justices is, Katie, bar the door. Hello, welcome to the show. I'd like to sup with my baby tonight. Refill the cup with my baby tonight. 
to sup with my baby tonight Fill the cup with my baby tonight I ain't up to my baby tonight Cause it's too darn hot Too darn hot, too darn hot, too darn hot like to coo with my baby tonight Pitch the woo with my baby tonight I'd like to coo with my baby tonight Pitch the woo with my baby tonight Brother, you fight my baby tonight Cause it's too darn hot, too darn hot, too darn hot Man, you know, much prefers his lovey-dovey to court when the temperature is low. But when the thermometer goes way up and the weather is sizzling hot, Mr. Pants for romance is not. Cause it's too darn hot. To coo with my baby tonight. I'd like to coo with my baby, pitch the woo with my baby. Like to coo with my baby tonight, pitch the woo with my baby tonight. Brother, you fight my baby tonight, cause it's too darn hot, too darn hot, too darn hot, too darn hot. According to the Kinsey report, every average man you know. Much prefers his lovey-dovey to court when the temperature is low. But when the thermometer goes way up and the weather is sizzling hot, Mr. Gob for his squab, a marine for his queen, a G.I. for his cutie pie is not. Cause it's too darn, too darn, too darn, too darn, too darn, too darn hot. From Santa Monica, California, where it's not. Darn hot. I'm Harry Shearer. Welcome you to this edition of the show. As a matter of fact, it's gray and chilly in Santa Monica. Not too darn hot at all. And now... Remember, maybe a couple of years ago, sure you do, when uh, everybody was, not everybody was talking about something called a metaverse. It was, it was so big that Mark Zuckerberg changed the name of his company to Meta. Remember that? Well, it's two years later now. Businesses are not rushing to adopt the metaverse, according to the analyst firm Gartner. Why? It's too big, too uh, enveloping, too um, fascinating, too time-wasting? No, because it's just not very good or useful, according to the business tech journal 
the register a document titled emerging tech adopter anti-patterns metaverse use cases are plagued by low adoption it's a long title but yet they met they wrote more and it identifies two issues does that document that deter users from adopting metaverses virtual reality vr use cases in non-gaming environments are failing to live up to customer expectations for scale and immersive meetings using avatars are not yet compelling enough to create sustainable metaverse experiences they left out it sucks the document based on interviews with 52 metaverse providers and analysis of 170 adopter implementations asserts that early adopters of metaverses quote are, mo quote, are most frequently seeking ways to improve productivity or customer engagement or address marketing brand and sales challenges unquote in the latter roles they're most often used to create virtual shopping malls or as environments in which to host virtual events virtual shopping malls doesn't sound good to you what's the matter with you generation z boy do i hate that stuff i gotta say right now can can we stop with the generation xyz this that and generation a b start over again it's just done for advertisers nobody else cares about that stuff i'll get back to the story now generation z folks between folks but born between 1996 and 2010 supposedly are the only cohort tuning in to metaverse experiences and even they are not enthusiastic about them gartner's researchers found 85 percent quote are really not that interested in brands operating in metaverses unquote 43 percent say quote they're staying away from the metaverse because they don't understand it unquote that's good work by communications companies that attitude comes as post-pandemic reopenings make generation z happy to go shopping in the real world again users also complain that vr experiences are physically uncomfortable the thing on the face really they're ugly too making virtual environments challenging for many users many also worry about privacy and security the cost of vr hardware is another negative for many like the $3,400 that for the one that Apple introduced a couple weeks ago you can't buy until next year anyway things aren't going to improve in the short term quote improvements to hardware devices and virtual reality collaboration software to mitigate these adverse reactions are still in an early experimental stage options vary by platform again this limits scalability for such VR environments, unquote the document. Gartner, this research firm, also worries that virtual experiences are silos, <laughs> meaning there's decaying hay inside. No, meaning marketers will be wary that running them won't make meaningful contributions to the data they collect about customers and prospects. Is this all about advertising? 
Virtual meetings are also disappointments. These are generally fun to experience and are fine to implement on a small scale, but they're distracting to implement in the long term, according to the research paper. Quote, furthermore, the long-term value of immersive meetings is as yet unproven, and they're not expected to fully replace traditional video conferencing. Unquote. Another issue is that avatars are too lo-fi and then make for odd experiences. Quote, one particular issue concerns avatars, facial expression and recognition, key for clear communications, are not always well synced with the real person. That's quoting a quartet of Gartner analysts. Took four of them to say that. Quote, syncing avatars' lips, eye movements, and facial expressions in real time with the person embodying it is possible, but depends on sophisticated hardware, which can get expensive. Continuing to quote, in fact, immersive meetings are more expensive to implement. The document notes that while the cost of hand-mounted displays, sorry, head-mounted displays, HMDs, has fallen, adopting the hardware requires grunty computers to make them work. Grunty computers, ladies and gentlemen. and still requires paying for a video conferencing service. Quote, it's questionable if immersive meetings will stay afloat in the next three to five years unless product leaders can pivot these experiences into more compelling ones with clear outcomes. Unquote. The blunt document, which I'm betting was composed on a non-grunty computer. Also, from the uh, smart, smart, smart world, Google is accused of misrepresenting the placement of YouTube video ads by playing them on low-quality third-party websites where they may never have been viewed. This also according to the register. That means Google has been taking millions, if not billions of dollars from advertisers for video ads that perhaps no one actually watched. I know, it sounds like win-win. Some of these advertisers, though, are now said to be demanding refunds. In a report out this week, Ad World Watcher Adalytics, you get credit for that one, claimed 42 to 75% of true view in-stream ad spend, meaning spending, was allocated to Google video partner sites and apps which did not meet Google standards, unquote. Decoding the jargon, that means as many as three in four commercials, known as in-stream ads, booked via Google and shown in videos on other websites and apps, weren't actually seen or not properly shown, like being muted, positioned off to the side of the page, scaled down to some small size, so forth. That's despite the true view promise that ads are truly seen. TrueView, according to Google, is Google's proprietary cost-per-view choice-based ad format that serves on YouTube millions of apps and across the web. TrueView gives advertisers more value because they only have to pay for actual views of their ads rather than impressions." Unquote. By that, I don't think they mean 
impersonators. Impressions like an ad flashed by you for a millisecond. Okay, job done. The analytics report contends Google's true view ads give advertisers less value because contrary to Google's commitments, many true view in-stream ads were served muted and auto-playing as outstream video as obscured video on independent sites, unquote. I know it all sounds so petty, doesn't it? When advertisers pay for TrueView ads, the content may run on YouTube or in videos embedded within websites or apps that are part of the Google Partner Network. The advertisers are paying for ads, uh, paying for ads that are viewable, have sound, and can be skipped. That's the best part, of course. But largely, according to the report, advertisers have been paying for ads that are not viewable or are muted or cannot be skipped. Such ads could qualify as, quote, invalid traffic, unquote. That's an industry euphemism describing both deliberate ad fraud and accidental click registration. These are grown-ups that are talking about this stuff. As a result of the above findings, Google may be asked to refund much of its true view revenue. That's where it gets serious. Media buyers interviewed for this report have indicated that's how they'd respond if they found out that true view ads had run on third-party websites. It is said that at least some of those in the industry do want their money back. The organizations and companies that purchase these ads are U.S. and E.U. government organizations state and municipal entry entities, Johnson & Johnson, Ernst & Young, Bayer, Samsung, Microsoft, Mercedes-Benz, and many others. Google's response, a blog post insisting it cares deeply about where clients' ads are placed. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you know what Google cares deeply about. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, I am. Microplastics. Think about it. Will you think about it? Yes, I will. Enough said. Pacific gray whale populations are threatened by microplastics in the ocean. That's according to an Oregon State University study that analyzed the poop of whales feeding off the Oregon coast. Researchers determined the whales now consume an average of, you better sit down, for, they better sit down for this, 21 million microplastic particles per day per whale. Ocean microplastics can negatively impact any marine life, but gray whales are particularly at risk. Their filter feeders, their dry diet consists primarily of tiny invertebrates called plankton. Filter feeder whales use a series of plates and bristles to strain plankton out of seawater. Isn't that a famous whale restaurant, plates and bristles? And this same process also traps microplastic particles. Study focused on a group of 230 whales that spend their winters in Baja, California, Mexico. Those lucky whales. The group known as the Pacific Coast Feeding Group 
then heads north to British Columbia for the summer. They can be seen swimming and feeding off the Oregon coast seasonally. Researchers collected and analyzed plankton off the coast to track the microplastics. Among 26 samples, they found 400 suspected microplastics, half of which were plastic fibers from your clothes. They then collected five poop samples. Ladies and gentlemen, will you welcome the poop samples to see if the plastics in the whale's food supply were also in their uh, poopistry? They found microplastics in all five samples, microfibers from clothes, again, accounting for half the particles. The contamination adds to the list of stress factors that whales already have to deal with on the Oregon coast. There's the noise that the parties, no, sorry, the Pacific Feeding Group members are skinnier than other populations in the area, according to one of the study's authors. Quote, whales are already stressed out with boats driving all around them all the time, and the risk of getting hit by one of those boats, she says. They might also have less prey around because of changes in the environment, like less kelp. Remember him? He used to do... And now the quality of the prey might be poor because of these high microplastic loads, unquote. The fact that microplastics in the ocean can make their way into organisms as small as plankton is concerning, the researchers say, and not just for whales. Quote, it's a wake-up call that whales are getting that much microplastic from what they eat. It's likely that humans are also getting a lot of microplastics from our own fish diet. Unquote. There's evidence to support that concern. A study published in the Journal of Hazardous Materials found that humans likely consume between 0.1 to 5 grams of plastic per week. And they're delicious. Just one word. Microplastics. And now... News of the Godly. Dainline Vatican City where some of the godly live. The Bishop of Knoxville, Tennessee, resigned under pressure this week following allegations he mishandled sex abuse allegations. And several of his priests had complained about his leadership and behavior, sparking a Vatican investigation. Pope uh, accepted Bishop Richard Stika's resignation, according to a one-line statement from the Vatican. 65, Stika is still 10 years below the normal retirement age for bishops. His departure after 14 years closes a turbulent chapter for the diocese. It was marked by a remarkable revolt by some of its priests who accused Stika of abusing his authority. Well, that's better than... And of protecting a seminarian accused of sexual misconduct. They appealed to the Vatican for, quote, merciful relief, unquote, a couple of years ago, citing their own mental health, sparking an investigation that led to the resignation. In media interviews, Stika strongly defended his actions and his leadership. He cited life-threatening health issues for his resignation. In addition to the priest's complaints, Stika is the subject of at least two lawsuits accusing him of mishandling sexual abuse allegations and seeking to silence the accusers. 
He said he never covered up sexual abuse in a TV interview. I would never tolerate sexual abuse of a minor or vulnerable adult, he said. He shared he was the victim of sexual abuse by a priest when he was a freshman in high school. In one of the lawsuits, a former employee at the Cathedral of the Most Sacred Heart of Jesus in Knoxville accused a seminarian there of harassing and raping him four years ago. The suit says Stika should have known the seminarian was dangerous because he had been accused of sexual misconduct previously. Instead, the bishop encouraged the accuser's friendship with the man. The accuser felt pressure to comply for fear of losing his job. Even after the former employee accused the seminarian of rape, Stika said Stika let the seminarian live in his home and steadfastly defended him, according to the suit. He told multiple people the seminarian was innocent and that the accuser was the aggressor. In a second lawsuit, a Honduran, Honduran immigrant seeking asylum in the United States accused a priest in the diocese of locking her in a room and sexually assaulting her after she went to him for grief counseling three years ago. She went to the police. The diocese was aware of the accusation but took no action against the priest until after he was indicted on sexual battery charges last year, according to the lawsuit. The suit accuses the diocese of spreading rumors about the woman that led to her being shunned and harassed in the community. She then filed a suit against the diocese, which hired a private detective to investigate her. He illegally obtained her employment records and told the police that she had committed employment fraud. According to the lawsuit, the suit claims the diocese was trying to either intimidate her into dropping both lawsuits or get her arrested and deported. The letter from the priests in the Diocese of Knoxville said um, the past 12 years under Stika have been, quote, detrimental to priestly fraternity and even to our personal well-being, describing priests who are seeing psychologists, taking antidepressants, considering early retirements, and even looking for secular careers. Oh, no, not that. Ann Barrett Doyle, director, so co-director of the online research database bishopaccountability.org said uh, the Pope should, quote, condemn the bishop's appalling repeated abuse of his authority and tell us what the papal investigators found out. The Pope's practice, she said, to date has been to stay silent when a guilty bishop is finally forced from office. Unquote. News of the godly. It's a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Sitting here, eating my heart out, waiting, waiting for some lover to call. I dialed about a thousand numbers lately, almost ran the phone off the wall. I'm looking for some hot stuff, baby, this evening. I need some hot stuff, baby, tonight. Some hot stuff, baby, this evening I'm gonna find some hot stuff I need some hot stuff tonight Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm looking for Whoa, 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 whoa. 
waiting for some love that you call. Dot about a thousand numbers lately, almost ran the phone off the wall. I'm looking for some hot stuff, baby, this evening. From Santa Monica, this is the show. Better bundle up, it's time for news of the crypto winter. Deadline uh, New Zealand, a New Zealand-based ethical travel company, lost millions of dollars on cryptocurrency trading for announcing that it was folding and wouldn't be refunding hundreds of customers for their prepaid trips. This according to the New Zealand Herald. Customers have also laid complaints about the company We Are Bamboo with the police and the serious fraud office. The comical fraud office wouldn't handle it, apparently. We Are Bamboo involved in bamboozling. Imagine that. Director Colin Salisbury put more than $2 million of customer funds into multiple crypto platforms for a couple of years, all of which was now lost, according to a report from Liquidator's BDO released last week. About $800,000 was also lost because it was put into fraudulent platforms which, quote, simply ceased to exist, unquote. We Are Bamboo announced late last year was closing, blaming the failure of the business partly on COVID. Salisbury has not replied to repeated requests for comment. The police have closed their investigation, left further inquiries into We Are Bamboo with the serious fraud office. When asked by some customers whether they would be refunded the thousands of dollars already be prepaid for their future holidays, the company said no invoking force majeure. Most of the customers were from the U.S., Britain, Canada, and Australia. English speakers all. In a statement at the time of its closure, the company also blamed the collapse on a group of customers who were not prepared to wait for delayed trips, and their actions and online influence have broken us, which impacts us all. Our intentions here are not to play the victim, but simply share with you the levels to which this group has gone to ensure our downfall. Affect, but nah, that's what the company says, Bamboo. Affected customer Kate Jeffries Hill said knowing now the money was lost on crypto made her, quote, sick. To think they had the hide to blame us for their demise and continue to tell others we're the reason makes me sick. No wonder they refused requests for our money to be returned. In my view, the company had on hold for tours not yet supplied was not company funds she says 
Salisbury claimed he was concerned about the U.S. dollar's ability to hold its value. That's why uh, he invested in crypto instead. He said there was significant uncertainty about the length of travel restrictions and inflationary threats due to the pandemic. So he made 85 deposits to a popular cryptocurrency exchange, netting about $2 million after adjusting for the occasional withdrawal back to the company's bank account. We understand these funds have been entirely lost. Once these funds had been deposited to the exchange, over 59,000 transactions occurred either buying or selling up to 27 cryptocurrencies, unquote. It appears the director, Mr. Salisbury, took reasonable steps to attempt to recover those funds, says the report. However, as they were funded via Bitcoin, Bitcoin and Ethereum, the transactions were irreversible, unquote. Shepard told the Herald, these platforms simply ceased to exist, and therefore the crypto they were holding more or less disappeared as well and was unable to be traced. He said there were, quote, an awful lot of angry clients, uh, unquote. In his line of work, it was not common to see companies fold due to losses in the crypto market, he said. Welcome to the almost future. And amid a surging number of criminal convictions involving cryptocurrency, the U.S. Marshals Service has been tasked with managing and disposing of Bitcoin and other digital assets. This according to FedScoop.com. Like other seized property, the law enforcement agencies in charge of taking custody of crypto through the asset forfeiture program of the Department of Justice and even periodically auctioning it off. But at least from a software perspective, keeping track of crypto is pretty hard. For that reason, the law enforcement agency has spent the past few years trying to hire a private tech company to help. Despite settling on contracts with crypto companies, at least two agreements appear to have fallen through. So now the Marshals Service is still maintaining seized crypto on its own. Currently, says a spokesperson, for the DOJ's Assets Forfeiture Division. Currently, there's no private company that manages the Marshall's Service cryptocurrency portfolio. The uh, service has struggled with handling crypto. And Department of Justice Office of Inspector General's report highlighted the fact that last summer, at the time of the publication, the Marshall Service was using multiple spreadsheets to manage its crypto primarily because digital assets like Bitcoin aren't easily tracked in a Justice Department property management program. These documents, according to the IG, don't have inventory management controls and documented, documented operating procedures. Policies for handling, storing, and valuing crypto are also inadequate or absent. And in some cases, according to the IG, provide conflicting guidance. 
The Marshal Service's spreadsheets don't have the capability to track edits made to the cryptocurrency entries in the inventory records. That's from the Inspector General who says, as a result, these inventory records could be edited or deleted without a record of such a change being made. Brr, it's a crypto winter. And speaking of editing, the um, White House has released late this week an edited version of the uh, audio tape that came out a few days ago of former President Trump examining some papers with his uh, few aides in his office. There were apparently some discrepancies between the tape and uh, his description of it in an interview this week, and the White House says this new version resolves those discrepancies. You think we can hear it now? So, mm-hmm. look at this. Mm. I just got this. What it's, it's not a document, oh. but it's uh, hmm. wow. secret. Mm-hmm. It's very secret. No, you can't look. Well, don't get any closer oh, because it's, it's secret. Mm-hmm. I could, I could uh, declassify it oh, I if I was still president. Mm-hmm. But I'm not. So, but look at this. I mean, isn't this cool? This, I mean, it's not cool. No. Because I don't have it. No. But if I did have it, look. Look mm-hmm. at what it would say. Mm-hmm. Because. Wow. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is, well, that's this makes my case, and I don't even have a case. That's the thing. Yeah. There's no case here. Mm-hmm. And I look at it. And I, you know, I mean, I, I know you didn't. No, you you didn't believe me before, did you? Well, I did. But now you do. No, I. And that's the thing because mm-hmm. I need to be believed in. Well, you know, yeah. I don't want to sit here and have people not believe me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I didn't spend four years as as president for that. No, of course but not. I mean, this is the most secret thing I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And look. Here, see, read. Yeah. No, no, mm-hmm. don't read. But I mean, look, look at the uh, markings mm-hmm. on the paper, mm-hmm. and just imagine what it would say if you read it. Yeah. So, all right, that settles that. And now, the apologies of the week. We're so sorry. Dateline, Hayward, California. The Board of Supervisors of Alameda County, which is in the San Francisco Bay Area, the the supervisors apologized this week to previous residents and descendants of Russell City. That's a community established way back in 1853 near the shoreline. Board of Supervisor President Nate Miley brought the apology forward in a resolution along with a new supervisor. The board passed the resolution unanimously. Supervisors in 1950, this is what it's all about, told residents of 
Russell City, who for decades pleaded for public services that the county had no obligation to provide sanitation and water, forcing families and individuals to leave. Quote, we forced you out, said County Supervisor Keith Carson to former residents and descendants of Russell City present at the meeting. With direct intent, those residents were forced out, Carson said. Residents of Russell City had a sense of community pride and, among other things, joy, said a new member of the Board of Supervisors, Elisa Marquez. I'm sorry that was taken away from you. Russell City was a predominantly black and Latino community in Alameda County. It was declared a blight by county supervisors in the 1950s. Its, later, its last residents were forced out in 1966 after the community was annexed into Hayward. Also destroyed was a vibrant music scene, according to local TV station KPIX, that included the likes of Ray Charles, blues pioneer T-Bone Walker, and Willie Mae Big Mama Thornton, a blues legend who did Hound Dog before Elvis Presley. Supervisors made the apology this week while some former residents are still alive. At least two former residents and one descendant were at the meeting. Russell City was erased by eminent domain to make way for an industrial development for which the supervisors provided water and sanitation. County officials paid $2.85 million to clear Russell City of seven churches, 13 businesses, and 205 family and 33 individual homes, according to the resolution. Ethnic minorities such as Black, Hispanic, and Puerto Rican people were paid about $2,000 for their property, which was said to be fair market value, according to the resolution. But at least one white property owner was paid over half a million dollars for their property in Russell City, according to a 1964 newspaper article. According to one member of the Board of Supervisors, Russell City, quote, is just an example of why some people don't trust government. Supervisor Keith Carson cited other forms of government oppression of black people, such as New York's use of eminent domain to remove black people from Seneca Village to make way for Central Park. Really? Somebody who's listening in New York might um, help me out with that. Meanwhile, more apologies. The Independent Insurance Agents and Brokers of America, the Big Eye, has issued an apology for what it calls an unfortunate interview segment between its president, Bob Rusbolt, and Fox News host Jesse Waters a couple months ago. The interview was held during the legislative conference of the uh, insurance agents and brokers. According to a CNN report, Waters, who has a history of making offensive jokes and now has the 8 p.m. time slot on Fox News, made a crude comment questioning the gender of Vice President Kamala Harris. The remark prompted a few laughs, but mainly backfired. Several members of the audience walked out and told the big eye they were appalled by Waters' behavior. Rusbolt's remarks during the interview weren't reported, but the big eye stressed it does not condone racist, sexist, or homophobic statements or behavior, unquote. 
In response to a backlash, the Big Eye said it would have Rust Bolt relinquish his operational duties immediately in advance of his retirement in September. Quote, it is disappointing to see Mr. Rust Bolt end his 37-year career at the Big Eye in this way, according to the association in a statement. He also apologized to those gathered at the luncheon, which was focused on diversity later that day. Republican presidential hopeful Vivek Ramaswamy called out an Iowa newspaper for printing a cartoon he described as bigotry. The Quad City Times, a daily paper based in uh, Davenport, Iowa, issued an apology and retraction after a cartoonist depicted Ramaswamy greeting a group of Trump supporters who shout racist things back at him. We apologize today for letting such an image slip through our editorial process and into our editorial page. Times executive editor Tom Martin said in the apology, the cartoon he continued while intended to criticize racist ideas and epithets uses a phrase that is racist and insensitive to members of our Indian American community. Unquote. Statement said the paper has severed ties with the cartoonist who drew it as well. Said the editor, the oversight that allowed it to run is inexcusable. We can and will do better. And of course, we don't know. This report from NBC News does not include the phrase, so we have no idea what this apology really is about. The Canada Border Services Agency has apologized after a lap dance. It was caught on camera. It was performed at the end of a work event during Pride Month. According to the Canada Border Services Agency, the CBSA, a one-hour event was held at Toronto International Airport for employees to learn about the 2SLGPTQI plus community and to promote an inclusive workplace culture. Unquote. The event included a 55-minute information and Q&A session and it closed with a musical performance. Quote, a line was crossed during the performance of a second unexpected song that included a lap dancing seen on social media, a spokesperson told CTV News Toronto. Video of the event shows an individual in drag dancing to Whitney Houston's I want to dance with somebody in front of a crowd before walking up to a uniformed officer. The dancer is seen sitting on the male officer's lap for a brief moment before getting up and returning to the front of the room. Another uniformed employee took video of the incident. It did not impact border services said the CBSA, said the footage is not representative of the full educational session, and they have followed up with local management. We apologize, they said in a statement, for allowing the introduction of inappropriate behavior at a workplace event. A technical glitch meant that BBC weather app and website users were told to brace for chilly winter weather this week. It's now been fixed. A problem at a third-party supplier resulted in BBC platforms fraud, uh, forecasting 45-degree temperatures for next week. 
and TV weather forecast displayed incorrect information on Thursday night. BBC Weather apologized for the disruption, which was fixed on Friday. The somewhat surprising forecast came amid a, a spell of warm weather that has seen daytime temperatures above 68 degrees in recent weeks. And as you probably know, for Britain, that's warm. Fujitsu Japan is in the spotlight for all the wrong reasons after fumbling its attempt to fix the nation's troubled ID card scheme, according to the register. The scheme called My Number aims to provide every resident of Japan with a digital ID card that will be used to access various government services, services and replace health insurance cards. One use of the cards is to arrange for administrative documents to be printed at convenience stores or government offices. But that scheme has produced ongoing data leaks. Residents order documents and arrive to find papers pertaining to other people complete with their personal information. That and other problems with my number are ongoing, leading Prime Minister Fumio Kushido to admit last week that the situation is eroding public confidence in government digital services. Fujitsu has admitted to a failure in which data inconsistency occurred. It's asked all local government customers to stop using the application behind the card so it can once again probe the cause of the problem and consider whether other aspects of its service need to be reviewed. No time frame has been offered for that review. The Japanese technology icon has apologized profusely, and not for the first time. It already issued such apologies on May 1 and May 19th. Little wonder that Japan's recently established government digital agency decided to avoid working with local tech giants, including Fujitsu as it started working towards government services hosted in and delivered from the cloud. England Captain Ben Stokes says he's deeply sorry to hear of experiences of discrimination in a report into cricket in England and Wales. The Independent Commission for Equity in Cricket says racism, sexism, classism, and elitism are widespread in English and Welsh uh, cricket. And speaking of Britain, ex-Health Secretary Matt Hancock has criticized the UK's pandemic planning before COVID, saying it was completely wrong. He told the COVID inquiry that planning was focused on the provision of body bags and how to bury the dead rather than stopping the virus from taking hold. He said he was, quote, profoundly sorry for each death. After giving evidence, he approached some of the bereaved families. They turned their backs on him as he left. The former health secretary, who answered questions from the inquiry this week, said he understood his apology might be difficult for families to accept, even though it was honest and heartfelt. He added it was a colossal failure to assume that the virus spreading could not be stopped. He was asked, was uh, Hancock, why, if he was so critical of the UK's approach to pandemic planning, he was not changed while he was health secretary. 
Hancock said, quote, the only answer I can give is because I was assured that we had the best system in place in the world. In hindsight, he continued, I wish I'd spent that short period of time before the pandemic changing the entire attitude to how we respond to a pandemic, unquote. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast, and finally, news from the Olympic movement. VIPs can drink champagne to their heart's delight. While watching the upcoming Paris Olympics, the average fan will have to make do with soft drinks and water. Organizers of the Olympics decided not to seek an exemption to a law prohibiting the sale of alcohol in stadiums. Under the law in place since 1991, alcohol is banned from sale to the general public inside stadiums in France. Games organizers hadn't sought an exemption. The law allows for an exemption for 10 events per organizer per year per municipality. Paris 2024 is organizing more than 700 events. Spokesperson said such an exemption would have required a change in the law. Alcohol was banned from stadiums at the uh, COVID-delayed Olympics in Tokyo, but of course the events eventually were held without spectators. Beer and wine were available at 2012 and 2016 games in London and Rio. For this year's Rugby World Cup, which also takes place in France, organizers have negotiated an exemption for the tournament in September and October. A dry Olympics is a movement too.
Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. Back next week, same time, same station in the radio universe. And at the time of your choosing on your audio device of choice. And it would be just like the world cooling off a little bit, if you agree to join with me then. Well, you already thank you very much. Uh-huh. Tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego desk, to Pam Halstead, to Garrett Pittman at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts, playlist of music heard here on, and a lot of other stuff to read and watch and be befuddled or bamboozled by, all at harryshearer.com. And um, let's see, what time is it? I think I'm still on Twitter, at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Sensory Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Changes Easy Radio Network. So long from the home of the homeless. <laughs>